We are continuing this morning in our four-part series with the four staff members of our church, kind of telling our story. And uh, it's been kind of cool this past week to, to think about that and kind of remember a lot of things. But I, I'm excited to do it because I think telling our stories is important. I think telling our faith journey, our life journey, our, just how we got where we are, how God met us on the way and changed things for us from time to time, I think it's important for us to remember that. I think it encourages it. It encouraged me this week. Kind of gave me a, a little extra pep in my step, just remembering how God has met me in different places in my life. I think telling your story is also an opportunity once you realize and remember the journey that you've been on, it gives you an opportunity just to give thanks and to say, God, thank you for your involvement in my life and your passionate pursuit of me my entire life, whether I knew it or not. So it's good to give thanks as we tell our stories. And then I think lastly, as we tell our stories, it's good for you to hear my story. It's good for you to hear Steve and Don and Steve's story. And actually, it's good for you to hear each other's stories because they're going to encourage you and they're going to challenge you. And you're going to see bits and pieces of yourself in other people's stories too. Even though your story is completely unique and completely about you, it is a really cool opportunity to give thanks and to celebrate and to share with each other. So as I was preparing this week, you know, I had to revisit a, you know, a season of my life as a young kid growing up. But that was fun. Brought back a lot of memories. Brought back stories that I haven't thought about or told for a time. Reminded me of all the things in my childhood, my adolescence, beginning of some kind of a faith, and how all those things were part of molding me and to become who I was. But at the same time that all those things and all those experiences were molding me and kind of shaping me, where I stand now, those things in my past don't define me. Because I had an encounter with Jesus that changed my life and defined who I am. There's a group of people in the book of Ephesians that Paul is addressing. And his sole purpose in the first couple chapters of that book is to let them know that what they've experienced so far in life, sure, it has a great deal to do with who they are, but that doesn't define what their future is. He wants to give them a new set of instructions, a new set of opportunities that, it, that, that will define what their future is. So I'm going to go ahead and read our passage this morning. It's from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. I encourage you to read along with me in the bulletin. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus 
through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That is a beautiful prayer, isn't it? He uses such descriptive words. Hopeful. He uses words like a big family, glorious riches, power, assurance, the depths, lengths, and heights of God's love, and that we would know them. I'd like to dazzle you just for a moment with my biblical interpretation skills. As the passage begins, and as Paul's prayer begins, he says, for this reason. So, in case you didn't catch on, there was stuff that came before. And for that reason, he has this prayer for the Ephesians. So, he has something he wants them to know. And then he finishes it off with this passionate prayer for them. The first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul spends trying to help people under the Ephesians understand who they were and also where they can be going. And that place is different. And they're being invited to come to a new place. So just a little bit of background on the Ephesians and the town of Ephesus. The town of Ephesus was one of the top four cities in the Roman Empire. Very powerful, uh, very well-educated. It was a huge hub for transportation and shipping and commerce. It actually was on a harbor of a river that led out to the Aegean Sea, which is right off of the Mediterranean. So it was a very opportunistic part of the world at that time. Ephesus was not a Jewish-populated city. It was full of Gentiles which are basically, just for matter of explanation, if you weren't a Jew at that time, you were a Gentile. And the God of the Jews was not necessarily the God of the Gentiles. In fact, in the city of Ephesus, there was a pagan temple that was erected to the Greek goddess Diana. So there, there was definitely a lack of the Jewish tradition and the Jewish teaching. So because of that, there was a lack of teaching about Jesus and the Messiah as well. Paul used Ephesus as a major mission field for him because he knew that they didn't know that they didn't know. And it was his job, he felt, to make sure that they knew the good news and the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he did through his life and his death and his resurrection. So Paul was determined to bring this good news to the Ephesians, And the Gentiles. And through the first two chapters, he uses words like family, inheritance, belonging. And all those things prior to him telling them about that, those all those things belong to the Jews. Because they were God's chosen people. Jesus came initially for them. But what he wanted them to know is now they have an opportunity to be a part of that family. To enjoy the inheritance that comes along with it and enjoy the belonging. They're no longer aliens, he says, but citizens of this new kingdom that God's bringing about. That's a pretty revolutionary thing. For them, it was eyes wide open and really? Next, in the second chapter of Ephesians, 
he hits the biggest note on the piano of faith. He talks about grace. And he talks about grace with an understanding that they had no concept of. In their mind, and even by the example of the Jews that came before him, it was, how good are you? Have you earned this position in God's favor? Have you done enough to appease God for all of your actions, your sins? This was a huge, unbelievable, and hardly conceivable giant door he was swinging open. That now there is an unconditional, completely covering love of God for every single person. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. But you have to accept it. This was life-changing again for him, and that's what his purpose was. This was huge. These people on the outside are now saying, or being told, you have an invitation to be on the inside and to be part of this incredible family that God has created. That brings us back to the passage and maybe gives you a little clue as to what brought on this impassioned prayer that Paul had for the Ephesians. You know, when there's good news, when you have a bite of something at a meal that just wows you, you got to tell people about it, right? When you have something that changes your life, when you hear a song that changes your life, when you go to a football game and your team wins, you want to let everybody know. When there is good news to be told, Paul was the one that wanted these people to understand that. And he knew how to communicate it to him. So he's done that. And now he says this. For this reason, I bow to my knees. And I ask that all these things would become clear to you. He wants them to know and understand that what's available to them now can change their lives. Even in the, the fourth and fifth words of his prayer, I kneel. This was eye-popping to them because it was very common at that time that when you prayed, you stood. Because it was, a, it was a proclamation. You wanted everyone to hear what you were saying in your prayers. Paul says, I'm taking this to a new level. There's a part of me that so wants you to know what I'm trying to have you understand. That I'm not going to do it from a standing position. I'm going to kneel down. And I'm going to put myself before God in this position and plead with Him that you would know the height and depth and breadth of his love, that you would understand that all of this that you're seeing and hearing is for you and for everybody. He prays that they would have power and that they would be strengthened. Eugene Peterson has a version of the Bible uh, that he's interpreted called The Message. And these words of, of power and strength he uses the word that's like the ability to stand up under something and to shoulder a weight. Because what they were coming to a realization of is that what they were going to have to try to grasp and let in was beyond their power. And they had to have strength and power from somewhere else. He prays that they would go ahead and have the ability to, to go ahead and test this love that's being talked about. Go ahead and give it a shot. See if he really does love you in spite of or in lieu of. And that it's wide and it's high and it's deep and it's long and it's never ending. 
And you are entitled to it. And he wants you to know it. One of my favorite authors is Brennan Manning, and he, one of his books talks about the point where grace really affected him. And he understood it for the very first time. And his description was that I was seized by the power of a great affection, and it undid me. It left me speechless. It left me falling on my knees and just giving thanks. I think Paul's prayer is that they would be seized by a power of a great affection far beyond themselves. And if we read Paul's prayer for them, I think part of the challenge for us today is, are we seized by that power of a great affection? And how does it affect us? Well, we are in the series of telling our stories. I guess I better start talking about myself a little bit. I want you to, as I tell a bit of my story, I hope that you'll hear it with the kind of the reverberation of this prayer, though. Because this prayer ended up being a pivotal point in my life. I, uh, I didn't grow up in church. We, my dad was a military officer. I was the son of a colonel. We traveled all over the world. By the time I was in ninth grade, we had moved 12 times. About every three or four years, you just knew it was time. That everything was going to packed up, the moving truck was going to come, and you'd move to a new place. As a kid, when you move that often, you have to try to figure out a couple things. Because every three to four years, you've got to make a whole new set of friends. You've got to find a whole new way to fit in. You have to find about what it is, what you bring to the table. What's going to work for me? So my life growing up was, was a part of that. You had to learn to be outgoing to be able to make those new friends. So for me, kind of my go-to, my, my anchor, I think, was from a very early age, my dad enrolled my brother and I in every single sport that was available. And there were a lot of them. And I found out as life was going on that I was pretty good at sports. And particularly football and baseball. So wherever we moved, Wherever we went, when I had to uproot and start over again, I knew that every base or army base or city we moved to, there were going to be sports teams, and I had confidence in myself because I was a pretty good athlete. So that was my, that's what I brought to the table. That's what helped define me, that gave me confidence, it gave me ability to, to fit in and to make new friends. It kind of became my identity. You know, when I showed up, I wasn't just the new kid of the colonel that lived across the street. I was the catcher on the baseball team and the linebacker on the football team. Kind of the chunky guy on the basketball team that just could get rebounds, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and then a pivotal part of my life happened. I was in either seventh or eighth grade. I can't remember exactly which grade it was. But my parents got invited to a Bible study run by a group of military um, officers called Officers Christian Fellowship. And not too long after them going to these Bible studies that these friends of theirs invited them to, we had a little family meeting, and my brother and I were told that mom and dad are now Christians. And they tried to kind of fumble through and explain a little bit of what 
that meant. But really, to me, and to my brother, all it meant was that now we're going to church every Sunday. And I wasn't excited about it, but I knew that if there was one thing I learned up to this point in my life, when the colonel says something, we're going to do it. So I became a church kid. At least they told me I was. I didn't feel any different. I really didn't act any different. My language didn't really change. But I was going to church every Sunday. And I think just my mere appearance there led people to believe that I was the equivalent of a Christian as a church kid. All I knew is that church was pretty boring. They had a lot of rules. And they had a lot of expectations on the way you were supposed to act. And you had to know the words and the lingos and even had to try to memorize a Bible verse. So I was a church kid. As I, uh, as I got into high school, I was still kind of relying on my identity of someone that can kind of get their approval from people and their kudos from being an athlete or being a good kid. And when I'm my freshman year of high school, I guess I was big enough and they thought I was good enough, so as a freshman they invited me to play on the varsity football team in high school. That was a pretty big thing. What came with that, besides just the fun and joy of being able to play with the big guys, um, it came with some other things, too. It came with some social perks. Kind of had an identity with the older kids. That included sometimes partying with the older kids, being accepted. Some popularity at the high school. It was a huge high school. Almost 8,000 students in my high school in Northern Virginia. So to be on the varsity football team as a freshman was a pretty big deal. Lo and behold, the girls even started noticing. As I was playing football through high school, my mom was my biggest fan. She would go to every single game, scrimmages. She probably would have gone to practice if I let her. And my dad would always go to the games too, but they would never sit together because my dad would not sit next to my mom during a football game. She was so loud. She never sat down. I don't care if there were 5,000 people in the stands and it was raining and pouring, I could hear my mom yelling my name from the football, from the stadium. It's encouraging, right? But then it's also like, Mom, just chill a little bit. But even in the midst of all this and, and football and life changing and kind of trying to figure out who I am as, a, as an adolescent, I was still required to go to church, still required to go to youth group, and everyone still assumed that I had a faith of some kind, and I didn't. I didn't know what in the world I believed. But my junior year in high school, as a dutiful church-going kid, I went on a retreat up to the mountains with the high school group, and I think if I'm all very honest about it, it was probably... There was a couple of cute girls, and I figured, well, well, it can't be that bad. We'll just go up for the weekend or whatever. But I remember distinctly that on that retreat, I had an experience. It was an emotional experience. It was kind of one of those kumbaya kind of moments, but I didn't even know really what was going on. There were guitars playing, and there were songs being sung, and I was singing the songs. 
And for some reason, I started to get emotional. And I didn't even know what I was getting emotional about. I mean, the tears were really close. And I didn't know what to do with myself. And I actually physically got up and left the room because I just needed to go and walk. I wasn't really sure what was happening and I wasn't really liking what was happening. I didn't know why it was happening to me. Well, I went home, finished things up. You know, I'm, nothing really changed because of that experience, but I still remember having it. Sports continued, football continued to be a part of my life and my identity. I was even starting to get scholarship offers to play football in college. And strangely enough, a friend of my dad in the military arranged for me to have a, an appointment to West Point and to play football at Army. I did not want to go to West Point. But as a kid of a colonel, man, you know what, how important that is and the impact and everything. That was a hard decision that I had to tell my dad that I didn't want to be in the Army. I, I don't know if he secretly wanted me to, but I think he would have been really proud to have a kid go to West Point. It was a pretty big deal. So I turned down West Point, visited some schools, Virginia and Maryland, Virginia Tech, and I wound up at James Madison University in, uh, in Virginia, Central Virginia. Life was good. I was on the football team. I had an identity with that. I had a lot of friends. I had an instant group of people with the guys on the football team. And then the fourth game of my sophomore year came around. And we were playing the University of Virginia in Harrisonburg, where James Madison is. And about midway through the third quarter, I made a tackle in the backfield and rolled over weirdly on my leg and tore my knee up. They had to carry me off the field. I had immediate surgery the next day. Changed my life forever. Everything that I knew that gave me meaning and identity and substance was gone. Had the surgery, recovered at school. And by the next spring, the football coach told me that my position on the team was gone because I couldn't play anymore. So my grades started slipping. Class was not even optional at that point. It was kind of a pain. I didn't do it very much. And I wound up, by the end of that spring semester, getting a letter from the school saying, we invite you to take some time off. You're on academic probation. So you can imagine what that day was like when I had to tell my parents that I could no longer play football anymore but I also was invited not to come back to school for a while. So that was a tough one. So the next couple of months during the summer, I just struggled with who am I? What am I supposed to do? You know, at that point, I'm 19 years old. Um, what do you do? So my best friend, who was my high school quarterback on the team, we were team captains, we were friends. We grew up kind of hunting and fishing a little bit together in places. And we had this wild idea that since we don't really have any purpose, let's drive to Alaska from Virginia. So we bought a 1972 Datsun pickup truck. That's how old it is because it wasn't even Nissan back then, it was Datsun. So we had this orange Datsun pickup truck, small one. We built a camper bed on the back of it and some beds that would fold down and fold up that we could kind of live in. 
and he and I drove to Alaska. Before we left, part of my flailing around and not really knowing what was going on was I decided, I still remembered that experience that I had in high school on that retreat. And I said, all right, God, here's a deal. You know you're pretty arrogant as a 19-year-old where you give God the opportunity to make a deal with you. <laughs> but that was my purpose. I said, God, here's the deal. I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover on this trip to Alaska. And if you're real, let me know. So we took off and we drove all the way to Alaska. Two sets of tires, four fan belts, and a fan later. We drove the Alcan Highway, gravel roads and everything, and we made it to Kodiak Island, Alaska. And for the next eight months, I did some pretty crazy, stupid, really fun stuff. I was on Alaskan King Crab Boats, that deadliest catch show that looks crazy. I did that. And then I worked on this big fishing boat where it was like 28 degrees constantly because I worked in the freezer section where all the boats would unload the fish and I'd have to process them and all these kinds of things. I even had an old Hungarian guy in a bar say, what do you do for a living? And I told him, he said, how much do you make doing that? And I told him, and he goes, that's nothing. If you meet me at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning out here at this yard, you'll make twice that before lunch. Well, I didn't know exactly what he was talking about, but I figured it was, sounded good. So I showed up and he taught me how to sew the webbing onto commercial crab pots with an old wooden needle that you loaded with tar twine to do it. And I did. I made a lot of money because I got paid by the pot and he told me how to do it and I learned to do it pretty quickly. The whole time all that's going on, every morning I would read a couple chapters of the Bible. The Old Testament was pretty dry, pretty tough to get through, but I did. And I got to the book of Ephesians. And I got to the third chapter. And I read Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And that morning as I was reading that prayer, that prayer was for me. It wasn't for a group of Gentiles. It wasn't for some people that Paul had met. It was for a screwed up 19-year-old that was struggling with who he was. And that prayer told me that there was a me that God saw that I didn't see and other people weren't telling me they saw. And I believed him. It made a huge, huge difference immediately. Because all of a sudden, I didn't have to perform. It didn't matter if I was good or not at work or sport or relationships or whatever. There was this love that God had for me that was beyond what I could imagine. And there was nothing I could do to get him to love me any more than he did in that moment and nothing that I could do to get him to love me any less. Because he offered me grace. A lot of changes in my heart, my attitude, my language. You know, there's, it still bothers me today when people curse because I used to all the time. And from that day in Alaska, in the back of my pickup truck, reading the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians and for Scott Kale, I never, never cussed much anymore. And it still just kind of twings me a little bit when people do because it reminds me of who I was before. So 
it just, life just starts rolling from that point. We left Alaska to drive back, and on the way back we stopped in Montana because we'd been invited to work as counselors at this Christian camp for kids. I'm all of like two months into this new adventure with God, but we did it, and it was wonderful. All of a sudden, my story, my life, my wanting to be with teenagers affected them in a positive way. We got back to Virginia, and I had been home for probably a month or two, and uh, the youth pastor that I had had when I was in high school that I really didn't pay any attention to or anything else, he said, why don't you come help out? Why don't you volunteer as a, as a college-age person for the youth group? So I did, and I really enjoyed it, and I felt like I had something to tell these students and to encourage them, because I remembered what it was like floundering through middle school and high school and trying to find your identity. And for me to be able to tell them that there's an identity in Jesus that is available to you started becoming pretty cool. After about three or four months of volunteering with the youth group, this young woman walked in. Also a college-age person who happened to be just coming home from college, and her mom and dad knew my mom and dad, and my mom and her mom did some planning. <laughs> and for two years, all that planning was for naught. Because we, uh, she was beautiful, she got my attention, but all we did was really argue. We, didn't, we disagreed on most things. We butted heads a lot. And then my friend asked her out. And for some reason, that didn't go well with me. So after he had his date with her, I asked her out. And that woman is my wife of 38 years, Judy. We got married. And as we got married and tried to figure out what in the world we were going to do, we both enjoyed working with young people. And we said, all right, let's pull up roots. And at the time, we were both working in the ski industry because I was a retail and an instructor in the winter. And she was in the business, too. So we uprooted everything, and we moved to Colorado. Finished Bible college, went to seminary, started having my three wonderful boys. Thirty-some years later, I've worked at four other churches than Piedmont and had this amazing run, an amazing joy and purpose in my life that I can't imagine doing anything else. Because you see, I believed what he said about me more than what I thought about myself. There was a group of people in Ephesus, Gentiles, that needed to hear Paul's word about grace and about family and inclusion and inheritance that they didn't know before. And through Paul's prayer, they started believing what he had to say about them and what God had to say and not just what they knew. I hope that, you know, the time we spend together today gives you an opportunity to really be thinking about what are the words you believe, too, about you and about that prayer that Paul had for the Ephesians. It was not only for Paul and not only for me, but it was for you and for each one of us.